Thanks, Paul. Thanks for the prayers. <clears throat> so my name's Tom. I'm one of the elders at the church, and uh, this morning I get to conclude what's become our little mini-series within our broader series on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, maybe you've noticed that we've slowed this section of the story way down, Genesis 32 and 33, and that's because this is Jacob's defining moment. All good stories have conflict at the beginning, and they, the tension rises, and the momentum builds, and it all builds towards a climactic moment. And this morning is Jacob's. And if we trace the tension in his life back, the great conflict in Jacob's life starts with a broken relationship. His story is rooted in the struggle between him and his brother. Hey, Scott, should I do something different with the mic? I'm getting a lot of, like, ringy. But. So I'm an older brother. Uh, I can attest to the fact that for brothers, struggle and competition gets tangled up in everything that we do. There have been multiple closet doors broken in multiple houses. <laughs> but it's, it's not just fighting. I remember the day that my brother came home from Adventureland, and he had gone with his friend, and he was brave enough to ride the tornado. My younger brother. I remember the shame that I felt when he did something that I had not had the courage to do. You know, your friends get in line, and you just wait while they ride the roller coaster. Um, who wins in basketball? Who has the prettier, more popular girlfriend? When all said and done, this is the big one, who's taller? <laughs> and you know what, I, I think the truth is, I lost every one of those competitions. I mean, I think Hillary's the prettiest, but <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> you know, Looking back, those are all kind of silly competitions. If I got a little bit more vulnerable, I could tell you about, I think it was Christmas Eve, um, well before I knew Hillary, and my brother called me, my younger brother, and he had gotten engaged. And I tried to be really happy, I tried to be like stoked for him, but there was some, you know, jealousy, and a dis you know, feeling that he, he did that before I did. I am grateful, though, that my younger brother never did anything that made me want to truly kill him. But the struggle between Jacob and his brother led to that. And it started in the womb, where these two twins are bouncing around, battling it out, seemingly trying to fight to be the firstborn. The struggle was visible during birth when Jacob emerges holding on to Esau's heel, as teenagers, Jacob's always watching, waiting for a moment of weakness, and he finds one, and he tricks Esau into trading his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then Jacob seemingly wins that, that most important competition, the most important struggle of all when he robs his brother of that spoken blessing that rightly belonged to the firstborn. Remember that, that powerful, unretractable promise of abundance and prosperity. 
one of the standout moments uh, for me in this series is this. Do you remember this? Back in Genesis 27, right after Isaac tells Esau, they both discover that Jacob just ripped him off and took the blessing. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me even also, father. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also, O my father. And he lifts up his voice and wept. You know, we don't know if Jacob hears those cries. We don't know if he hears that agony mixed with anger. We don't actually know the last time that Jacob sees Esau's face. But I would bet that this many years later, 20, maybe 30 years later, when Jacob lays his head down, closes his eyes, my guess is that some nights all he sees is Esau's face. Those murderous threats echoing around in the back of his mind. Here's the thing. Esau is right to be angry. And Jacob knows it. Jacob knows that he deserves it, that he's got it coming. Again, looking back at Genesis 27, when Esau is getting on his, or I'm sorry, when Jacob is putting on his Esau suit, about to trick his father into giving him that blessing, he knew that what he was about to do was very wrong. In verses 11 through 12, he says, But mom, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. See, he knew what he was doing was worthy of a curse. And yet, he was desperate for a blessing. So he takes that risk, and I just imagine his, like, his pounding heart, uh, attempting to control his breathing, steady his voice, stay in character, keep his composure, act natural. And I just imagine him there pretending to be somebody he is not, and having the words, these powerful words of blessing poured out on him in the middle of his guiltiest moment. Was that blessing real? A few weeks ago, Paul Jones was preaching the story about God showing up to Jacob right after that, when he's first fleeing from Esau. And it surprises us because God shows up not with punishment, but with a promise. And uh, during that sermon, Hillary, my wife, leans over and she whispers in my ear and she goes, it irks me that God would be so generous with Jacob after the bleep he pulled on Esau. <laughs> it irks me. A promise made to a liar? Generosity poured out on a thief? Was that a real blessing? We can't believe that God would do that. And I don't think Jacob could believe it either. Jacob seemed to get what he wanted, the blessing, 
But he, more than anyone else, knew that what he really deserved was a curse. And the curse has a face. It's his brother. Who just so happens to have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> skills, skills he has acquired over a lifetime of hunting. Skills that make him a nightmare for a person like Jacob. And he will look for him. And he will find him. And he will kill him. <laughs> I couldn't resist uh, Liam Neeson, Taken. It's a movie. <laughs> but hey, this morning's story, which we're about to get into, it's the climactic moment of Jacob's life because blessing and that old curse are on a collision course. And he's on the verge of experiencing one of God's promises, a very specific promise that God made to him to bring him back to the land of his family peaceably. And he's on the verge of experiencing the punishment, finally facing the death that he knows he deserves. Blessing and curse. Which one is real? Which one is true? Let's jump into the story, Genesis 32, verse, I'm sorry, Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in the front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. And now, just before we read on, um, I want us to remember that this section is an immediate continuation of last week's story. And just a few verses earlier, Genesis 32, verse 30, we read that Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It's a bit of a story there, but uh, he'd just been up all night wrestling with God physically. And he got his butt kicked. So then verse 30, the sun rose upon him as he passes Penuel, limping because of his hip. And I just like to stop and appreciate the cinematic value of this biblical moment. Because it's dawn, the glow of the sun is on his face, his shadows cast across the land, limping not into a sunset like a, a good movie would end, but into a sunrise. I couldn't help but think about one of the times that I've gone up to the top of Mount St. Helens, uh, we did a sunrise hike where you hike overnight and then you get there at the moment the sun is rising. So you park at the parking lot at like 9 p.m., take a quick nap, wake up around midnight or one, put on your warm clothes, put on your headlamp, and you start hiking and you hike for a while, you boulder for a while, and then you end up trudging the last little bit through ash and you get to the top and you can just see that little line of the, the sunrise coming on the horizon. And it's, a it's an epic feeling, exhausted, tired, worn out, like you just, those last few steps were everything you had, getting your butt kicked, 
beauty. All that I had energy left to do is basically stumble down the mountain and let gravity take me home. And this is the same way, sort of, that God prepares Jacob to finally meet his brother. So he hears that Esau's, or he sees, he heard Esau's coming, and now in verse one, he sees, though now a little ways off, there's Esau and his army, sees him with his own eyes. And immediately we see Jacob start to organize a little bit, starts to move people, women, children, who goes where, and we start to worry a little bit that he's back in his old way of scheming and controlling. But verse three, he himself went on before them, kneeling. So we've seen fearful Jacob. We've seen wrestling Jacob. And now as he moves from hiding in the back to kneeling in the front, we're seeing risk-taking Jacob. Again, remember that even though God's promise has been repeated to take him back to the land peaceably one day, more recently, take you, we're going to take you back to the land peaceably. He sees the two camps. He sees God's angels mixed in with his camp. What feels even a little bit more real to Jacob, and now visible to Jacob, is that curse. And yet God did bring him here with a promise, and it's with that promise and the hope that maybe that promise could be true that Jacob has the humility and the courage necessary to face his guilt and whatever's going to come along with it. That verse says he kneels seven times, and in biblical terms, just basically means the guy couldn't kneel lower and he couldn't kneel more on his way to meet his brother. So here is Genesis 30, verse 4. Begins with, but Esau. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is what we came here for, right? This is, most of us knew, but we just need to sit here a moment with this embrace. Jacob's on the ground, he's weak, he's been wounded by God. He casts himself on the promise of God, and even though the conviction is deep that he deserves punishment, and we read those words, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and wept. This guiltiest moment in Jacob's life that he'd been running from for decades just became the most grace-saturated experience that he's ever had. Something is happening here that frees Jacob from the curse. Something is happening here that redefines blessing for Jacob. Jacob sees the face of grace and he sees it on the face of the one person who has every right to pour out justice, every reason to punish, every excuse to harm. 
He's embraced by the one most offended. And this is what the sermon and the story is about, how God uses grace to free Jacob from the curse and to redefine blessing. So in the next few verses, Esau asked Jacob questions. We see God doing this all through the Bible. We see Jesus doing this all through the New Testament, asking questions that get people to express what is in their heart. Esau asked these questions that show us how grace redefines the blessing. So question number one, verse five. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they with their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. It's natural, right? Brothers haven't seen each other in a long time. Who are these with you? We could translate that question, though, just in our terms, says, where did all this goodness come from? And using my imagination, I think about how would Jacob answer that question if I was out for coffee with him? Hey, man, what's the story? Like, where did all this come from? Jacob might say, well, I worked seven years for Leah, got ripped off, worked seven more years for Rachel, I was working my butt off for Laban until he turned on me. And there'd be more to say, but to this point, whenever Jacob thought about blessing, he probably always traced it back to the fact that, well, ultimately, he took it. He stole it. But it's in this embrace of Esau the one he'd stole the blessing from, that he looks at his stuff and he looks at his family in a whole new light. All of this is mercy. It makes me wonder if Jacob had ever truly received a gift in his entire life. That blessing had always felt counterfeit, a little fake, a little unreal, and it came hand in hand with the curse. A brother who hated him was hunting him down. As long as Jacob had the curse, everything he has has to be earned, has to be taken, grabbed, protected, clung to, hidden. He's accumulated the wealth and the family, but I think somehow he's also evading the blessing. And in releasing him from the curse, God restores a rightful view of the blessing. You don't earn it. Everything you have is a gracious gift. Question number two. Verse eight, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answers, quite honestly, uh, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, 
Accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. The question, what do you mean by all this company I met? Trying to translate this one, just something like, what are you trying to do here? This is the bribe procession. Anita described it a couple weeks ago. Jacob's plea deal. He'd sent this massive parade of livestock ahead of him. Roughly, this is my speed math in the passage, but 500 or more animals. He's using what he has to buy his way out of guilt, if at all possible. One of the words that really stood out to me in this passage is the word enough. In verse 9, Esau says, I have enough. Verse 11, Jacob says, I have enough. And I'm thinking, since when? What is enoughness? For Jacob, enough used to mean a comparison game. I want to have more than my brother. It used to mean status symbols, winning, the beautiful wife. It used to mean influence, having the ability to use what you have to change the way people see you, to earn respect. But in the face of grace, embraced by the one who, most, who he most offended, Jacob is insisting Accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously, graciously with me and because I have enough. In Jacob's answer, we see that there's a whole other relationship layer going on in this encounter. It's not just Jacob and Esau. It's Jacob and God. Now he sees everything as nothing but a gracious gift from God. And now Esau, as he releases him from the curse of guilt, he finally experiences enoughness. He finally feels the acceptance of God. That acceptance also redefines the blessing. We all have different measuring sticks for what enough means. But Jacob has a new one. His blessing is not something to use to control, to protect, to influence, or manipulate. Grace breaks into all that, and it unlocks the dam of blessing that has been turned inward. He could have been like we might have been, right? Like, oh, well, you know, if it... If we're cool, like, I'll, yeah, I'll keep it. We're good. But overwhelmed by grace, he just wants to give. It's overflow. He needs to give it. It's an expression of gratitude. 
Now, that's where we're going to leave the passage. I want to tell you that you can read further, you can read the next few verses, and it's possible that you might be relieved or maybe a little bit perplexed because there's still some awkward in this relationship. There's some awkwardness in this relationship. There is forgiveness. In a, in a way, they move on. But they also don't go back to like when they were kids and share a room again. I think that there's a little bit of real life in that part of the story. But as we conclude today, I want to zoom out and remember what God is up to in this story. After all, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God leads Jacob to this unavoidable, powerful encounter of grace in the most fearful and vulnerable place of his life. And he does it to release him from his curse and redefine the blessing. To see all in his life as a gracious gift. To experience acceptance. And to open up the dam of the blessing. All of our stories are different. If we trace back the struggle and tension and conflict in your life, in my life, none of our journeys look the same. Some of us know very well what it means to be haunted by guilt, by a failure, by a mistake that we made. Some of us know what it means to be hated by someone because of what we did. Some of us know that desperate desire to experience blessing, but to be trapped in that feeling of pursuit of enoughness. Some of us are familiar with tons of blessing being poured out on us, but knowing our secret failures, knowing our guilt, and we fear that we expect that one day it could all be taken away and that that would be justice. Some of us have never known acceptance and seriously wrestle with that feeling that we are not enough. But every single one of us in this room knows a little bit about being undeserving. So whatever your story, every one of us can trace the tension, struggle, and fear back to a broken relationship. Not necessarily with your brother, your sister, with your parent, with a coworker. The greatest conflict in our lives, underneath it all, can be traced back to a broken relationship with God. But here's the good news for people who are haunted, people who know their failures, people who feel that curse. The good news, it's something that sometimes irks us when it's applied to someone that we see who doesn't deserve it. And it's just that, that God's grace abounds precisely for those who don't deserve it. In his grace, God will lead you, perhaps he already has, to a place where you can deal with the curse where the promises of God that you've heard collide with this idea of punishment that you deserve. 
in his grace, God gives you humility and courage to face, to enter that risky place, to face your guilt and whatever comes with it. And we remember that he creates safety there. His kindness draws us, leads us to repentance. And in his grace, God, the one most offended, embraces you. We can't read Esau's story, we can't read the story of Esau's embrace without thinking of the prodigal son. Remember in Luke 15, the son who essentially stole half of all his father had, wasted it, literally ran his life into the mud, finds himself in this moment of surrender and risk, returning to his father, just hoping maybe to become a slave, fully expecting punishment, he limps back to his father, and we read, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him, and he kissed him, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine who is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. This week I had Ephesians 2 also echoing in the back of my mind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can you hear God asking you, where does all this goodness come from? In the face of grace, God helps us see all that we have as nothing more than a gracious gift. What are you trying to do here? What are you trying to earn, prove, in the face of grace, God, God accepts us, and we have, and maybe more importantly, we are enough. And in his grace, God unleashes the blessing through us for others. There's a calling here, and this isn't a small point, although we'll just spend a moment on it. A calling to be people who show the face of grace to others, even and especially when we're the ones most offended. We're not the only ones around who struggle with the blessing and curse tension or the grace and guilt tension or the acceptance and feeling of being enough. And look in the story how God uses the face of grace on a real person and uses that to transform and heal and release Jacob from the curse.
You know, a lingering question I have reading this passage. Esau says he has enough. But I think about what did it cost him to offer this kind of grace to his brother? Using my imagination here again, but maybe he literally did have enough. And time healed the wound. Or he was a hunter. Maybe he took it out on all the animals. Every time he pulled the string back on his bow, pa! Picture his brother. But we do know that it cost him the right to deal out revenge on the one who had offended him. We see this tension throughout the entire Old Testament. God's people really did kind of live in this tangled mess of blessing and curse. But God, being rich in mercy, would not leave his people alone in that struggle. And he leads all of human history to the place where the promise of mercy and the expectation of punishment collide, where the curse gets broken once and for all in a beautiful yet tragic way, when not the embrace, but the full wrath of God is poured out on the one, or the full wrath of God on the the full wrath of God, the one most offended, is dealt out on the innocent one, the only one who didn't deserve the curse. The cross is the cost, and it's where grace and acceptance and blessing gets unleashed on the world. So God's invitation for you is to let that climactic moment in human history release you from the curse and redefine what blessing is. And as we, as you, show the face of grace, may people get a glimpse of the cross, or the, (laughs) may people get a glimpse of the curse-crushing, blessing-unleashing Jesus. Let's pray. God, what can we say but thank you? What can we say but we are undeserving. And it's overwhelming, God, to be treated as your children, welcomed home, despite the lives that we live, despite the, the tendency to turn our backs on you. Where would we be without your kindness, God, that leads us back and draws us in? We thank you for pouring out grace that, that leads us to where we need to go in life, even when it's hard giving us the courage and the humility to face these things and meeting us with embrace. Thank you for all that we have and may it be held with open hands. May the grace and the goodness you've shown to us reflect and be poured out on others in our world. Amen.